waste is one of the biggest environmental impacts. So when you look at all the things that are happening as a consequence of waste, we cut down more trees than we need. We use more water than we need. We grow more products than we actually need. We're mining more than we need. So if you can eliminate waste from your own production and from your own business, then you start to see that you're having a, a really good impact. That could be in terms of the materials, actually your power that you're using, the energy, the packaging, or even just time that's spent wasted, which means you're not that productive. So you work longer to be as productive as you need to be, which has got a knock-on effect. So you're now using more lighting and power to stay in the office longer, and it has a massive social impact through long hours working. So one of the simplest things you can do is look at what you're doing in terms of waste and, and start to cut that back. Hello and welcome to the Success with Savita podcast, where we share hot tips on how to do life and business without losing your mind. I'm your host, Savita Nanjapa, entrepreneur, high-achieving 9-to-5-er turned transformational success coach, helping you create a wildly successful business. Come hang out with me and other fabulous humans like you every week for stories and chats packed with a healthy dose of tips, resources, how-tos, and real talk. Side effects may include a happier and more confident you with each passing day. My guest on today's show is Helen Cooper, the founder and CEO of the Helen Cooper School of Luxury. Helen has enjoyed a highly successful business career of over 35 years experience working with global premium and luxury brands, delivering high growth and outstanding projects that have transformed struggling brands into winners and launched award-winning products that are both innovative and beautiful. Helen originally qualified as a teacher before moving into the commercial world and has a deep passion for sharing knowledge and inspiring others to be amazing, whether that's in business, creating fabulous products or supporting others through informed investment. While she continues to work on multi-million dollar projects with big multinational companies, Helen also noticed that there has been a significant shift occurring in the luxury market over the past few years, driven by the new luxury consumers from Gen Z and millennial groups. This luxury shift has started to drive the future of luxury in different directions and open up exciting opportunities in developing markets such as India. The reason for establishing the Helen Cooper School of Luxury and writing the Decoding Luxury course was to share a lifetime of experience and expertise so that brand owners, entrepreneurs, and employees can grab these new opportunities and enjoy the commercial benefits of being part of the rapidly growing Indian luxury market. She teaches proven tools and techniques that have been gathered and developed throughout her career and uses straightforward language, visuals, and explanations to ensure that all students really understand what they mean, why they matter, and most importantly, can apply them to their own situation or need. In today's conversation with Helen, we talk about luxury, of course, the shifting trends within the luxury industry, sustainability, greenwashing, how to spot it, and so much more. Come join us in this conversation. Good evening and welcome to the Success with Savita podcast. Today, I'm super excited, Helen, to have you here with us talking not just about luxury, but also your story and, of course, about sustainability and everything else that the School of Luxury is uh, the work that you're doing here in our country. So welcome to the podcast and get, I'm honored to have you here today. 
Well, thank you. And thank you for the invitation. I'm, I'm delighted and can't wait to get started. Yeah. And with that, let's just dive right in. My first question for you is share with me your story and how did you start Helen Cooper School and why? Okay, well, I'm originally trained as a teacher many moons ago when I was uh, a lot less right lined and wrinkly. And I taught in Africa actually for three years after graduating university. But then I went into the world of business. So I've got about 35 years experience in business with blue chip and SME companies, taking brands to launch uh, in the UK, but also around the world. So these were companies like Avon Boots, Yardley, Virgin, The Royal Mint, Neil's Yard Remedies, and so on. Um, and it's really been through leading personal care brands, um, such as also UK Bayless and Harding, who make fabulous luxury hand washes, um, but are starting to internationalize. So I realized that I'd accumulated and acquired a lot of skills over that 35 years almost an A to Z of what you need to know if you are developing a new brand and if you then want to launch it into a market, whether that was UK or, or abroad. Um, and I needed to share that, you know, whether, whether they're luxury or premium brands. So I started mentoring a number of quite young startup companies in the UK. And what I found that the same skills gaps were really emerging and they'd be constantly asking these sort of questions, you know, well, how do I do this and, and what do I do? And so I did a survey. And what I found was there was a consistency across everything, uh, finance, strategy, marketing, branding, negotiations, even people management, communications, all of those sort of things. And so I thought, look, there's got to be something else that I could be doing. So I started to incorporate more training into the sessions with those mentorees. And the results were spectacular, actually. They really moved their businesses forward quite fast. And when I asked them, well, where would you have got these skills otherwise? Some of them said, well, we probably wouldn't have found them. We would have brought somebody in and that would cost. Or I'd learn on the job or I'd learn through making lots of mistakes. You know, and I'm quite open and honest. I said, I've made most of those mistakes myself. So if I can actually help people avoid making them, it will avoid them wasting time, money, resource, effort in, in getting their businesses going. And so I thought the best way for me to do that was to start to write a few courses. So there was a bit more of a structure, some training guides, things like that. And I started to use that. And, you know, I realized that a skills-based training was an opportunity. And so we went from having essentially five courses and two or three training guides to now having 15 courses, I think 13 workshops and eight training guides, which will cover all of the, the key skills that an entrepreneur is gonna need. So that's where we started and the school has kind of emerged from there. All right, wow. It's a very interesting story because I do business coaching myself, so I, I get everything that you're saying the whole cycle you're in, in the skill sets that you are teaching you're covering the whole cycle of the customer life cycle and how you would run a business so why india what's the india story well i was always very aware that india was a great source of luxury goods and services but also equally aware that i never saw any of those brands anywhere that they didn't exist they were simply goods that were supplied to a western luxury brand who then utilize and put their label on it and nobody ever heard about the maker or the provenance or anything like that at all 
And you know, when when you look at that, the simple fact is that a brand adds value, and the better the branding, the more value you can add. And so that skill gap of being able to brand very effectively was very clear to me. If I look at India, it's got some of you know the well-renowned universities and colleges that are teaching the conventional luxury branding type courses. But the problem that I've got with that is that ultimately they they don't teach the practical skills. And so our strapline is we'll show you how. So you might get a theoretical knowledge, but actually you need to know how to apply it. And so for me, India has that huge opportunity to be able to take not only its reputation and culture as a producer, but also the growing consumer market that's looking for luxury across a wider variety of products and actually start to build something which is a uniqueness for for India. And so that's the gap I decided to fill. And we are so glad to have you here uh, doing this. But I now want to go into luxury. You spent so much time with all these amazing brands, building these brands. What have you seen uh, or what have you observed in the luxury market post-COVID? Are there some trends, changes that you're seeing or is it business back to usual? Yeah, it's been an interesting time, hasn't it, for everything and everybody. Um, I think if you look in every market sales review that you can see in terms of the, the way that sales across the whole market and then the individual sectors, you see this enormous V, which is the drop in 2020 and 21, driven by the lack of travel because a lot of luxury relies on that um, travel retail business, but also Chinese customers being locked down. And what we have seen increasingly was a lot of the luxury brands were rushing over to China to take advantage of the consumer heavy Chinese um, uh, business. And in some cases had about 48% of their revenue actually derived from China, massive risk. Even this week, L'Occitane is reporting an ongoing issue because there's still a lot going going on in China. We just don't hear about it that much. And so that that V, I think, is going to be an iconic element of the luxury market for generations. But what that V also shows you is the resilience of the luxury market. And so no, no longer is it down in those doldrums, but it's leapt up and it's actually achieving beyond pre-pandemic sales level. And that is not just a factor of this so-called revenge buying of the incredibly wealthy people that go out and buy a diamond because they can. Actually, it's about the consumer who is more discerning and wants to have higher quality, well-designed, well-made goods and potentially is prepared to save a little bit and to wait until they can get it because they're not going to compromise and actually um, buy something of a lesser quality. That's not in their, their psyche at all. They will wait. And so I think what we've seen is that that resilience is very appealing. We've also got this opening up of new product areas that previously weren't considered luxury, but are now luxury because they're indulgences. And one of the factors coming out of the pandemic is that we all want to treat ourselves a little bit better. We want to treat ourselves more kindly. We want to make sure that every day is lived and that everything that we have is of value to us. I don't think that rush towards the fast consumer, you know, volume heavy market, it's not over, but I think it's diminishing, particularly when you look at it within the realms of the younger consumer. And there have been a lot of changes made because of course, when fashion was basically shut down, they had to change, they had to move a lot 
faster than they've been doing towards online, for example. They've been resisting going online because they were so bought into the idea that it was only that personal experience that could really convey luxury. Now they couldn't have that personal experience. So now what do you do? So you saw a rapid move into websites that had better experience, social media that was more innovative, more interactive and allowed the conversation to begin, which had never happened before. Luxury had always been a one-way channel of conversation. You know, that's a diktat. That's not a conversation even. So now the consumer feels a lot more engaged and involved in the brands that they're buying. So I do think that we've seen some changes. Um, six things that I just listed down when I was looking at that. So first one is, of course, the website and the, the social media. The, the second one was the virtual catwalk. Now, the catwalk and the fashion shows had always been the domain just of the, the wealthy and the um, journalist. And so the real buyers of fashion were excluded from it and only ever saw what was put then into the stores later on. So that haute couture idea, that sort of sense of inspiration was completely missing apart from what you saw in Vogue. And now what they can see are these online catwalks, which are inviting more people to become engaged with that, that experience. And in fact, I think... I don't know whether it was Balenciaga. There was somebody just recently in London who put on a combined virtual catwalk with a real catwalk. And it's just this merging of the online and the virtual um, with the offline is bringing a different type of experience. And I don't think that the brands are going to walk away from that because they've got such great traction with it. I think that the third area is the rise of um, the direct communication through platforms like WhatsApp, where personal assistants and personal shoppers were contacting directly their higher VIP customers to make sure that continued. That still goes on. The in-home try before you buy that was safe and actually had people who were, you know, they knew that that clothing had been carefully cleaned after the last try-on. It was a curated selection. So the boutique came to your home. That's a service that some of the better brands are continuing to use because not everybody still is going into the shops. There's still that reticence in different parts of the world. Um, the rapid expansion of metaverse. I defy anybody to know a lot about that because it's constantly changing. And in fact, we include that as part of our Fundamentals of Luxury course, just so that you get a, a rough idea of what this could look like. You know, the NFTs, what does virtual ownership actually mean? It's fundamentally different. And I think that's moved them on because luxury needed to be seen as innovators. And they're doing this innovation now through technology because it gets them really noticed. But also the new younger customer is existing in virtual worlds. And so that's where they expect to find their luxury brands. And then the final thing is the increased popularity of channels like YouTube that used to be only for a DIY male predominantly um, audience. And now they're becoming the location for brands to tell their stories and to show how products are made and actually engage with the consumers. Because frankly, during lockdown, they were bored and they had nothing else to watch or to look at so they could consume this longer form content. So it's very different. It's a, it's a different world now. And I don't think it's going to go back to where it was. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you've broken that down really well, really insightful. And I think it's quite fascinating. I'm really excited to see uh, where all of this is going and how it's going to evolve. Although I would like some revenge buying myself. Uh, but yeah, 
Um, now I want to talk about, you know, one of the things you talk about as well is sustainability. And, you know, sometimes it feels like a buzzword. Uh, everybody's talking about it, but really, how do you make a brand sustainable? There are different ways, but I think because it's so broad, uh, let me keep it to, you know, a brand which is a service or a lifestyle kind of product. How do you make it sustainable? And what are some easy ways, low-hanging fruits that we are missing that we could, you know, incorporate right now? Yeah, well, sustainability is something that I'm really passionate about. And I, I just think, you know, the three reasons around that, basically luxury has a responsibility to lead the way. You cascade down, you don't go up from the base because that's called evaporation, quite frankly, and it, it's lost by the time it gets into the air. So you need luxury to be taking a lead. They, they need to almost give the justification for the higher prices that they're charging they need permission now for that and they are i think quite neglection neglectful in their um use of that they're not doing it honestly they're not doing it authentically they've got huge financial resources and influence and yet it's not being used appropriately so i think you know luxury needs to start stepping up the other one is that sustainability for any brand is no longer an option. It's something which, quite frankly, has got to be considered. Um, brands need to help the consumer to live as sustainably as they want to. Uh, if the brand is not producing the right products, then how can the consumer have any impact? Absolutely nil. So we do need to see that businesses of all levels, all types step up. And then the third one is I really think that India itself is experiencing the consequences of climate change and social non-sustainable ways of working. And so you've got that on the doorstep. So why not be ele elevating this as a conversation and making it something which could be a point of difference? I personally do feel, and this is my big hairy goal, and it, it may not be in my lifetime, I have no idea, you never know how fast things turn, but I honestly see India being the global center for sustainable luxury production and brands of the future. It has that potential, but everybody has to start stepping up now to do something. So, you know, as the premier green school in India, sustainability is at the core. So we teach that a lot in all of our courses. We are bringing tips, but also inspiration um and ideas that people might be wanting to integrate so one of the first things you can do which is not only a benefit to the environment but to the bottom line and if there's one thing i know about business people they like to know what's in it for me is actually to to look at where you're wasting resources waste is one of the biggest environmental impacts so when you look at all the things that are happening as a consequence of waste, we cut down more trees than we need. We use more water than we need. We grow more products than we actually need. We're mining more than we need. So if you can eliminate waste from your own production and from your own business, then you start to see that you're having a, a really good impact. That could be in terms of the materials, actually your power that you're using, the energy, the packaging, or even just time that's spent wasted which means you're not that productive. So you work longer to be as productive as you need to be, which has got a knock-on effect. So you're now using more lighting and power to stay in the office longer. And it has a massive social impact through long hours working. So one of the simplest things you can do is look at what you're doing in terms of waste and, and start to cut that back. 
The second way is to start asking questions of your own suppliers. So go back to them and ask where they're getting the, the products and materials that you're buying from them. How are they sourcing them? How are they making them? And also, I always suggest an in-person audit. Go further down the supply chain, not only to your supplier's site, but to the site of the raw materials and see if you see unfair practices. As the customer, you have the right to do it. And actually, we need to start stepping up and, and pushing forward greater change. And the third one, I would say, is probably around using your own consumer power. Brands exist and businesses exist because they have people that buy their products. If you start asking the questions and you're being more demanding and more searching of how they're being more sustainable, then they will have to react because I think we should, we always underestimate the power of the purse, but it's the thing that really is going to move the needle much faster when businesses start to see a drop off in their sales for these reasons. So those are the three things I would say for a business. Yeah, and they are really easy things to do. And I want to talk while we're on the topic of sustainability. This is a term that I actually have been hearing quite a bit of when it comes to beauty brands and fashion brands. Like, you know, everybody is dropping, like I said earlier, the buzzword is sustainable. So, you know, if you see any website or say sustainably made or, you know, the word is used. But what is greenwashing? Because greenwashing is the opposite of being um, sustainable or just like your labeling. How are some, and what are some ways to spot it if you could share like? Yeah, absolutely. Well, greenwashing, its simplest definition is that it is a deliberate policy uh, action decision that's made by a brand or a company to give the consumer the perception, the idea that they are engaged in much greater levels of sustainability than are actually true and that are delivering results. That That's the simple definition of it. Um, it's incredibly dangerous because what that does is to confuse and mislead the consumer. And that leads to a mistrust. Now, that's a mistrust not only of the brand when they find out that they're doing it, but a mistrust of the term sustainability and it becomes this anodyne similar to natural what does natural mean for goodness sake you know everything starts off as a natural and becomes synthetic yeah you know what does it mean so i think that lack of education and understanding of what sustainability is is leading to brands actually thinking they can get away with greenwashing and then you what we are doing is in our course it's basically talking about how you build sustainability into the heart of your business if you're starting from scratch or how do you integrate it in after the event so it's not too disruptive but it's actually doing what you can do and it's being honest greenwashing is just simply dishonest and it's making bigger claims and just recently in fact in the last week or so h&m have been sanctioned in the us because on their labeling they're claiming 20 odd percent is recycled 20 odd percent. No, actually what a consumer looking at that would do, and this is how they're starting to judge this greenwashing as an issue, um, is what does the consumer believe? What are they reading between the gaps of what you're not saying? If what you're saying is implying that actually most of what you do is going to be from recycled source, but a small amount really is or actually you are sourcing it from ethical sources completely but actually only a tiny percentage or renewable sourcing you know how are you getting it these are all things that are the basis of greenwashing but you also have the opposite of greenwashing which is green hushing 
And green hushing is where businesses are really, really trying to do the right thing, but they're so afraid of being accused of greenwashing that they're not telling anybody. And that's equally bad because now you're concealing the brands that actually are doing something good and could get a real competitive advantage by honestly and authentically doing that. So it has this very undermining, divisive kind of approach to it. And I'm glad to see that some of these brands are no longer getting away with it, but we got to call them out. Otherwise, they will continue to do it. Yeah, yeah. And and then what happens is the consumer stops believing anyone is really sustainable. So then you're like, okay, I mean, I'm trying, but nobody's ethical, so why should I be? And the sad thing is that the brands will then move on to the next PR story and sustainability is left in rags when actually it is the most important thing. So, you know, having a sustainable business is not about just being for good and for purpose, but actually you make profit because if you don't have a sustainable, profitable business, you're going to be out of business and can't do any good for anyone. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. Stay tuned as we take a quick break and we'll see you on the other side of the show. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot of food for thought. And I can see you're really passionate about this as well. And now I want to talk about luxury as well, because I think green hushing is a new word I have picked up. I didn't know that existed. So I'm learning so much in this conversation. And coming to luxury, right? What makes a, in, broad, in a broad sense, what makes a brand mass market? I mean, you and me kind of know, but what really defines a luxury brand? What is it that I need to have in place before I can say, hey, you know what, I make a luxury brand. Well, luxury historically has always had sort of six criteria, including things like the price. Price was always seen as being the thing that you've you've got to be um, high priced to be considered luxury. Well, there's some high priced things I wouldn't consider luxury. Um, it's got to be something which is quite rare. And yet, when we look at the big luxury brands, how can I consider anything that I can buy identically in New York, Singapore, Hong Kong, or London to be rare? It isn't. It's just they're controlling distribution. But extraordinariness is the thing that is is the most difficult thing to define. And it's something when you look at it, you just go, oh, wow. That is something else. That is something I've never, ever seen before. It could be aesthetic quality of design, the way that materials have been used or put together, but something makes it truly aesthetically amazing. And that's the hardest thing to see. I think we can see there's a lot of craft in the world, but if I go to any craft shows and fairs anywhere, a lot of it is not ever going to be luxury because it doesn't have the finesse. It doesn't have the attention to detail. It doesn't have that quality and that extraordinariness. Now, we talk about a checklist of 10 things that luxury brands really need because in the old checklist, sustainability wasn't part of it. And now we're really talking about how do you how do you talk about that? And in fact, in one of our courses, we cite two Indian brands are the most luxurious out of all the ones that we've looked at across different sectors uh, in the UK and around Europe. Uh, one of them is Three Clive Road Tea, and the other one is Ether Chocolate, which is based in Mumbai. And they score more highly on the checklist of a modern luxury brand than any other brand that we looked at in that sector. 
So, you know, we know that it can be done, but it takes that attention to detail and that experience that you're giving to the consumer as well. That's what separates Hermes from H&M. You know, it's not about pricing any longer. That is a signifier that within the sector you're in, you are probably amongst the highest priced. But I consider an indulgence like a, a gold top macaron to be a luxury and it'll cost 10 times more than a normal macaron. But it's an affordable luxury, but in its sector, it's at the top. So I think you can't look at an absolute price point and say that now makes me luxury. Because actually, you need the consumer to fall in love with your product and with your brand. Luxury is very much more about emotion. It's not functional. Because if you just want a shirt to put on your back, you won't need to spend $1,000 for it. But the emotion that you feel and the quality of the material and the cut and everything about it makes it feel like something that you deserve. And when yeah. you deserve something, price doesn't matter, actually. You can charge whatever extraordinary price and that's the difference it's experience it's the extraordinariness but it's making sure that you're at the top end of the sector that you're within interesting and so this is just like more a yes or no question is it harder to la launch and grow a luxury brand than it used to be i think there are more opportunities in luxury than there have ever been before because the definition of luxury is expanding into this more indulgence. It's no longer about elitism, but elite craft and skill. And so that can come across from various different areas. One of the fastest growing sectors is actually in the fine wines and luxury spirits. And there's a lot of that now that's coming through with Sula Vineyards, everybody knows about in India. But we talk to other um, manufacturers and brands such as Jin Jin from Goa. It's got a lovely sustainable story, but it's always about small scale. It's not high volume. Luxury has never been about high volume. It's just become that because of these mega houses. So I think it is probably easier to launch a luxury brand now but you need to know what you're doing and what in your opinion should i know as a business owner if i decide hey you know i want to launch a luxury brand what are some things that i need to definitely know uh, about uh, starting a luxury brand i mean it's not for everyone well it's not for everybody but i think you go through um well, people have asked me, so I want to launch a luxury brand. Okay, well, what, what is that going to be? Oh, well, it's going to be this. Okay, well, why are you doing that? What's your expertise? What's your heritage? What are you bringing that's different for the consumer? Because if you're just going to copy what everyone else has done, don't bother. You need to have a different point of view for anything that you're doing in luxury because storytelling is absolutely at the heart of a luxury brand. If you don't have a compelling, interesting and authentic story, you aren't going to be able to be successful. So you may be able to, from a, a theoretical and strategic thinking, identify a gap in the market. But because luxury is about the emotion, not function, that simply says there could be something there of interest. But the way that you then interpret that and bring extraordinariness and innovation into the market is the reason why you would then be a successful luxury brand and then you build in all the usual things of what it looks like where you're sold what the product is how you limit the volumes all of those elements just actually come away from the the fact you know what your purpose is you know what you're trying to deliver and it's a cascade it's a really straightforward process after that but you need to 
get that first start point right. Or they need to learn, take some classes at your... Well, um, there's a very good school that can tell you all about that. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. As we um, move on, I want to ask you, what is what are some iconic luxury brands that you admire? What makes them stand out for you? What's special? Most of my brands probably wouldn't wouldn't be very well known um, because that's the definition for me of luxury, that I would just go down and, and have a, a jeweler, an artisan make something for me because it's mine, it's personal. When I look at the brands that are out in the marketplace, at the moment, I can probably tell you the ones I don't think are luxury. I don't think Gucci is luxury because it's become expense. It's become expensive fashion. Um, I don't think that uh, Tiffany is luxury because they've gone down the silver high street route, which makes them, in my eyes, probably not much better than Pandora, which is a more affordable high street brand. Um, I think that the likes of Hermes are luxury because they've been true to their story and they are, you know, it's it's not a high volume brand. It's something which is a real treasure still, whether you're buying into their bags or their scarves, it's something which has got that rarity value. And, you know, those would be the main ones for me. And then you, you start to look at alcohols and they come from really small distilleries and they are very special. And it could cost you quite a few thousand pounds to buy a, an aged whiskey from them, for example, like Macallan's. So yeah, the, there's, um, there's, it's easier for me to spot the ones who are no longer what I consider luxury. And that's kind of heresy to anybody that thinks, oh, luxury is all Gucci and, and so on. I'm not sure. Yeah. And also what I hear you say is, you know, when people think luxury, it's not just what you wear. It's not just fashion. It's lifestyle. There's so much to it, right? It, it's, it's your home. It's your uh, artifacts. It's your painting. It's maybe even, uh, you know, uh, the plants, the drink that you're having, the food that you're eating. Everything is, is, is considered in luxury. It's, it's not something you just buy. It's a considered purchase because it's expensive, but also it has a particular place that you want it to play in your life. And the same with services, you know, in just fabulous at luxury service. And so you've got, you know, both the heritage areas and Taj, for example, but you've got new um, luxury centers like um, the JW Marriott up at Missouri, who is fabulously into sustainability, but the experience that you get there is truly luxury. So it's, it's looking at how you can bring the customer to the forefront again of what you do, rather than it being all about the brand. It's, it's if you're not customer centric, you cannot be luxury. It's as simple as that. I'm loving this conversation. I still have so many questions to ask you, but I'm not going to hold you down. I have my a couple of more questions about you. Tell me what a day in your life uh, looks like. Well, because uh, most of the year I am currently based in the UK. Um, I, I deal with the time zone of four and a half hours at the moment between myself and the team in Mumbai. Um, so first thing in the morning, it will be responding to any of the early morning issues, requests, ideas that come through from all of them in WhatsApp and emails and everything else. And then I'll start to be talking to other guys like yourself. So promoting the school, but also doing short videos so that we're talking about the courses uh, in their own right. We'll be looking at where are we missing something in our, our portfolio. So developing that. 
working with our graphic designer to make sure that the whole look and feel is right. But it's constantly looking and reading about luxury and seeing, okay, this is, we need to share this information. Let's build this into the course because a, a course or a piece of learning can never be static. It's always got to remain updated. It's got to be something you've gone from a base point, but the conversation and the value that we bring on our courses is that everything is tutor taught, whether that is, you know, through a webinar or whether that's actually offline and doing walking workshops. It's all about their knowledge and what they're accumulating all the time. So the value that we bring isn't just our own previous experience, but it's our constant updating of knowledge that means that we're giving the latest information to all of our students. So they are ahead of the game because most people aren't doing that. Okay. And then um, work keeps you busy. What do you do when you're not working? I play golf. Yes, I, I play golf, which does mean I have to disappear for half a day usually, but I'm now known as the longest driver in the whole of the women's club, which is a bit worrying because now they're going to have to nobble me, I think. Um, but I also have a dog. Um, we got him last year and he's a very cute uh, spaniel, normally puts an appearance in on, on videos. And so I take him out for walks every day and I love walking, getting fit and then preparing for my next trip to India, which is on the 17th of August. Yes, I hear that. With that, um, just one piece of advice or a mantra that you follow uh, when times are tough for our audience. Be resilient because you're right. Okay, I like it. And I do want to uh, ask you about the School of Luxury. Who is it for? How do people find you? Of course, we're going to share all the links with this episode. Uh, who is it for? And, um, you know, what, what's their takeaway when they do some of these programs? Well, we've got a, quite a clear divide, really, that's emerged in the last uh, six, seven months. Um, the first one is business owners and business owners who want to understand how to either upscale their own brand so that just doing one thing might just make the big difference. I shared with you earlier the three ideas around sustainability that can still work. So uh, teaching them different ideas, teaching them how to identify their luxury consumers and go after them and how do you consistently do that? How do you deliver a luxury brand experience? What's the customer journeys? All of these sort of things actually help to elevate each touch point within a brand. And then we also have um, employees or potential employees who want to go into luxury, but they're coming out either from an unrelated degree course or they're coming out of one of these luxury branding courses but really aren't useful to any business so we want to make them useful and then give them the right start in their career so we work with India's leading um, recruiting partner for premium and luxury brands and we've developed a program which is called get ready for a career in luxury and so we take them through five different areas fundamentals of luxury the metaverse and so on how to pick the right employer so matching your values and purpose to luxury employers and brands how you can personally brand yourself to be more suitable for a luxury role we then have got sector inductions in three areas they choose one it's luxury fashion retail super premium beauty which i teach 
or um, luxury car retail. And then we pass them to our recruitment partner that is preparing them for an interview and we guarantee a job interview to those who pass the first four parts. And they're probably going to get a job as a result. That's not an internship. I don't believe that internships are the purpose of education. The purpose of education is to get a better job and to have a good start in your career. And that's what really drives us there. Yeah, and that's a great note to end this conversation on. Thank you so much for the value that you have delivered. I think uh, we should bring you on for part two, but uh, it's been really insightful. I've gotten to know the work that you've done and the work that you're doing here, and I look forward to staying connected. I wish the School of Luxury, Helen Cooper School of Luxury, all the very best. Thank you so much, Savita. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like this episode and you want more, you can go to the show notes on my website, which is successwithsavita.com forward slash podcast. If you like what you've heard so far, I would be grateful to you if you could leave me a five-star review, subscribe to this podcast and share with a friend who may find this useful. You can also follow me on my Instagram at successwithsavita and DM me any questions you may have and I will be happy to answer them for you. Until the next episode, believe in yourself and all the best to your success.